0: You're listening to the General Concerns Podcast, emanating from JohnJGoddard.com. Woodrow Wilson Guthrie, affectionately known as Woody, <laughs> was born on July 14, 1912, and he expired on October third, nineteen 1967. He was an American singer-songwriter, one of the most significant figures in American folk music. His songs, including social justice songs such as This Land Is Your Land, have inspired several generations, both politically and musically. His album of songs about the Dust Bowl period, Dust Bowl Ballads, is included on Mojo Magazine's 100 Records That Changed the World. Songwriters such as Bob Dylan, Phil Oaks, Johnny Cash, Bruce Springsteen, Robert Hunter, Harry Chapin, John Mellencamp, Pete Seeger, Andy Irvine, Joe Strummer, Billy Bragg, Jerry Garcia, Jay Farrar, Bob Weir, Jeff Tweedy... Tom Paxton, Andrew Jackson, Jihad, Brian Fallon, and so many others have acknowledged Guthrie as a major influence. He frequently performed with the slogan, This Machine Kills Fascists, displayed on his guitar. Robin Wheeler is an American writer and cooking teacher. She is the author of a forthcoming book with the working title, Woody Guthrie in Love. I'll be talking with her about that and some other items after a few words from our sponsor.
1: Polly Campanetti of Polly's Pasta Parlor down at 9523 Upper Bottom in St. Charles. Hey, let me ask you something. You like pasta? Well, of course you do. Hell, who don't? Well, boy, I got good news for you. Now every night we got our all-you-can-eat pasta buffet. That's right, $12.99, and you get to stuff your face with all the noodles you could ever want. We got spaghetti, spaghetti, spaghettini, fettolini, vermicelloni, vermicelli, capellini, capelli d'angelo, barbina, bucatini, percitali, frizzili lungi, Fusilli, Bucati. Oh, and that's not all. We also got Calamorata Calamaretti, Cannelloni Cavatappi, Celentani Chefari, Ditalini, Fagioloni, Fusilli, Garganelli, Gamelli Maccheroni, Maltagliati, Manicotti, Mazzani, Mezzani Pasta, Mezze Penne, Bombardoni, Pasta al seppo. We got penne, penne rigate, penne lice, penne zida, penne, penoni, regatoncini, regatoni, spirulini, trine, trinette, tortelloni, Tufoli, campanelle, capunti, casarecce, cavatelli, cencioni, conchiglie, conchiglioni, corsetti, Cresta de galli, crochetti, farfali, Fofoloni, fiorentine, fiori, foglie d'olivo, gili, gramigna, Lanta. Lumachi, Lumaconi, Maltaia. oh wait, I already said that. We got Mandala, we got Marile, Arichetti, Pipe, Quadrifiori, Radiatori, Ricciolini, Ricciatelli, Rotelli, Rotini, Strokesapretti, Torchio, Trophy, and last but not least, we got Ziti. All with your choice of 10 different sauces of meats. All you want, because we're going to make more. And please, don't forget to have a romantic table-sized Caesar salad prepared for you with love by my pop, John Tommy Campanetti. Hey, we gotta get him something to do to get him out of the house. And if that ain't enough, we got the best hand-cut steaks in town. And fresh catch-the-day tilapia flown in every day from the coast. Then you could get a piece of Mama's Cheesecake, the best cheesecake in town. Oh, Mama Mia! So come on down to Pauly's Pasta Parlor at 9523 Upper Bottom in St. Charles. And say bonjour to my pop, John Tommy. I personally guarantee to finest pasta in town. And if you're not satisfied, I'll take 25% off the bill. That's a Pauly promise. Arrivederci!
0: Hello? Robin Wheeler? Yes? It's John J. Goddard. What's going on?
2: Not much. I'm sitting here with a sleeping dog. And what's up with you?
0: First of all, you and I both have uh, something in common in that, well, number one, we've spent a lot of time in St. Louis. And yep. while I don't think that I can recall a time that we have personally met or spent time together, that doesn't mean that we haven't.
2: <laughs> I, exactly. Exactly. I cannot keep track of... Whose paths I have crossed. Um, well, and as I spend I've a mentioned, lot of time just, oh, go ahead. Yeah, not. I spend a lot of time. I did today. Um, just nodding and pretending I remember people's names. Yeah, I know you. We've met. Right, sure.
0: exactly. You look familiar.
2: <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, because I just assume it's somebody I've crossed paths with, either food-related or at a show or coffee house. You know. It's St. Louis. We all know each other one way or another.
0: Our orbits have intersected somehow.
2: Absolutely. Whether we, have we a remember bazillion or not. Billion friends in common. Yes, and we have a bazillion people in common. So.
0: <laughs> well, we also have uh, we have cooking in common. Uh, yes. Now I want to know about your career in cooking.
2: Um, my cooking career was completely accidental. Um. Other than, you know, my first jobs growing up were in restaurants. Um, literally, my first job was when I was 14 at the Missouri State Fair, uh, working illegally because I was too young, getting paid in cash under the table, uh, making corn dogs uh, for 14 hours a day in 90 degree heat. Right. So, you know, pretty much the appropriate introduction to the restaurant industry. Um, and then I went to college, and I was going to be a journalist, and I was going to write about all these great things, and I finished school. I worked in uh, video production for the University of Missouri for a few years, and thought I would gri- write my great novel on the side, and I never did. And realized, around the time I moved to St. Louis in 1999, that if I wanted to to make a living writing i needed to zero in on something to write about Mm -hmm. and i loved cooking and this was also about the time that food media was starting to get big we were starting to see you know the food magazines were really picking up their game i think gourmet started adding pictures around that time kind (laughs) of a big deal (laughs) food tv um the internet that thing um And so when I moved to St. Louis, I did some checking and found out that it was really cheap to go to culinary school at St. Louis Community College. So I thought, I'm going to go to culinary school and learn everything I can about cooking. And then I also have this as a fallback career if the writing doesn't pay, which it does not. Um, Went through the program there. It was fantastic and started writing for Sauce Magazine with their second issue in 2001. Oh, cool. And yeah, yeah. And uh, I guess it would have been the third issue that I did. Um, it was my first cover story. And it was about um, one-off cooking classes, like at Kitchen Conservatory or Deerberg's, where if you want to go and just learn how to make one thing. And Coca in New city had just started a culinary arts program.
0: I studied I opera in, there. Yeah.
2: Everybody has studied everything there. My daughter has studied art at COCA. Um, I'm not taking classes there, but I wound up teaching a lot of classes because at the end of this interview with the people who put together the culinary program, they offered me a job. Wow. It's like, wait a minute. I was interviewing you. How did this happen? Um, I had never taught anything, but I'm really bad at saying no. So I said, I've never taught anything. Sure i'll do that <laughs> yeah. i have no idea what i'm doing Take
0: it till you make it
2: <laughs> exactly um before i even had a chance to teach my first class um they got the great idea and i'm not saying that sarcastically it really is a great idea um to have chefs which i was not uh who were teaching classes um to cater their opening night events so if you were performing at coca Somebody had to do the past hors d'oeuvres and all that good stuff. And they asked me if I would be able to do past hors d'oeuvres for 100 people for an opening in the art gallery. Sure. I have no idea what I'm doing, and I have five days to figure it out. Um, So that was my first professional cooking job that was not in... You know, at the Missouri State Fair or at a crappy restaurant.
0: And let me guess, the uh, next five days were just completely nonstop <laughs> scrambling back and forth, figuring out how in the I, hell is this going to happen. And then I all cried of a sudden, a lot. <laughs> on the fifth day, it went off without a hitch, right?
2: It OK, now, keep in mind, also, this was 2002. That Internet thing, not quite as big as it is now. Right. I was going I was going from library to library around St. Louis looking for books on how to just even to set up my pricing, on how to not put myself in the hole, on how to figure out how much food to serve these people. Uh, Because the, the ironic part being the one class I skipped in culinary school was catering. So the one textbook that really would have helped me, I didn't have. Um, so I had to figure it out on the fly and yeah, I ran around like a lunatic and (laughs) God, I remember my mom asked me, uh, the day of the catering job or the day after she asked me, and what did you have for dinner before you went a hamburger helper and back salad (laughs) because that's where we are (laughs) and I'm okay with that. But yeah, that night went off. Um, my first business cards, That night, were people who were at the exhibit coming back and asking for my information, and me writing down my phone number on cocktail napkins. Yeah, I still do that. I got (laughs) catering chocolate. Yeah, I do too because I never remember my cards. So I never um,
0: remember to make the
2: cards. (laughs) Oh, I have piles of them at home, and then I forget that I've actually purchased them and forget to take them with me. So, but you know, I can, I can. Take them off of my taxes, I guess. Uh, but yeah, that's that's how I got started. And from there, it's like all of a sudden, I was still writing for sauce. And I was teaching cooking classes. And I had a catering company, which I did not plan on doing. And I did that for quite a while. Um, my daughter was born two years into this insanity. Um, I was teaching kids... Cooking summer camps. Okay. At Cocoa, when I was pregnant with her, Um, threw up in front of a class on the first day. (laughs) Yeah, when
0: it was brutally hot. (laughs) I'm and, pregnant and we're boiling, pa- <laughs> boiling pasta in St. Louis in the summertime right. is, a, is a theme I'm going to keep coming back to, oh, God. But, but boiling pasta while pregnant.
2: Uh-huh. <laughs> oh my God. Well, and the thing is, I was early, it, it was early on, so I wasn't showing yet and I debated whether to tell anybody there or not. Um, I decided on that first day to tell my assistant. Uh, Just to give her the heads up, because I was at that stage where I would fall asleep. Mm -hmm. Like I fell asleep in a booth at a restaurant before I found out I was pregnant a few weeks before that, which is totally not like me. So it's like I'm like doing things like falling over and falling asleep and throwing up. And just so you know, (laughs) I, I, I don't have a problem. I'm just pregnant. And. I did this, always did this thing when I would teach kids classes where I had a rule that unless I had a note from a parent stating that they had a health or religious or cultural reason for not eating something, they had to try one bite of everything. Right. And at the time, I hated mushrooms. Again, irony, um, lifelong hatred of mushrooms went away about halfway through my pregnancy. And now I love them. But... The first day we would always do stir fry, so that they would get this experience of handling all these different vegetables, making different sauces. Right. Um, you know, and I would have I would always include raw mushrooms. I I still don't like raw mushrooms, and I would tell them how much I hated mushrooms, and I would eat one in front of them, and I would not edit the expressions on my face. Right. And that day, I put that mushroom in my mouth, and I started chewing it.
0: And you're like, oh. And
2: the assistant who I had just met like half an hour before knew what was going to happen before I did. And she leaned over and she said, I put the trash can behind you and her timing could not have been better because that's exactly when I needed to turn around and throw up. <laughs> <Uh-oh>. <laughs> it was, it was, I followed that wrong motion, man, those kids not in
0: front of the children
2: in front of the children. And the Uh-oh. beauty is after I threw up, I turned back around and I said, I'm not dead, so you don't have any excuses. There's that nothing to best,
0: fear. <laughs>
2: that was the best-behaved class of kids I have ever had. Did they, did they laugh? They were a little mortified. I think they were afraid to. But by the end of the week, they were like, man, you threw up on the first day. Yes, I did. Oh. <laughs> and and I did tell them I was pregnant, and they were trying to pick out names for my child. And, you know, Portobello was high on the list. And no. <laughs>
0: Did you have to? So, did you have to explain how pregnancy happens? No. Okay.
2: <laughs> and I would not have. I would have thrown up again, <laughs> and, and then fallen asleep, and I would have had to have taken a nap. So, and then my culinary career would have been over. Um,
0: so you managed I, to avoid um, restaurants for the yeah, most part. Yeah,
2: yeah, I did. You and, lucky you know, thing. Did, uh, yeah. Well, you
1: know, when
2: I was in culinary school. Uh, I was 27 when I went to culinary school and had started to reach that point in my life where um, my patience and my tolerance for bullshit, you can edit that if you're not allowing profanity. I figured you probably were.
0: It's explicit.
2: (laughs) Okay. Um, Yeah, my bullshit tolerance was starting to deplete. What, you mean bullshit
0: happens in restaurants?
2: You know where it really happens in culinary school when there are five women in the class of 30, and almost all the other students are 19 year old boys. Right. And all of the instructors are 65 year old men.
0: Yeah. And you're like getting this preview of all of the toxic masculinity to come.
2: Oh. Oh God, there was one kid who had to show me his tongue ring every day and tell me what it was for. Like fun, I know. <laughs> go away. I am ten years older than you. Fuck off. <laughs> so so I mean I went into it and I, I remember specifically having days where I would sit and lecture in culinary school and go, Why am I here? I never want to set foot in a restaurant kitchen. This is this is the last place I want to be, but I really do love cooking. Right, and I love knowing about this, and I want to tell people about this. It's a fascinating and field. It is. It really is. But then and you so coo- I've-
0: you cook in Missouri, and it's like you're <laughs> you're cooking wings and you know, uh-huh. creamy pastas in a skillet, and yeah. the, you know it's like all very, very basic stuff. And I yeah. I also found that like you know the whole idea of career advancement was like you know you thought. We're all taught to believe that, you know, if you work hard and Mm -hmm. pursue your dreams, that (laughs) doors will open up and you'll just you'll walk right through them and and your career will go, you know, to the heavens. But like there wasn't that sort of there was not at all that sort of um, um, mentorship happening. It was like, no, we just we just got to get the wings and the burgers
2: out, basically. Yeah. Well, and I think that's what I caught on to pretty early on, you know, in my late start in the culinary field, uh, because I had gone through that working. I mean, I grew up in Sedalia, Missouri. That's where my restaurant experience started. Oh, boy. So, oh, yeah. So I got it. <laughs> my first restaurant job after the state fair was a Western Sizzlin steakhouse okay, in Sedalia, Missouri excuse me missouri missouri because that yeah. is, is firmly in the missouri part of the state okay and oh my god in the late 80s at that so yeah um
0: everything was, was uh not everything but i would i would uh, imagine there were a lot of breaded and deep fried items
2: uh-huh a lot yeah. of breaded and deep fried items my main um when they didn't have me doing the customer service thing, because I was a girl, um, I would venture back to work in the salad bar room, mm-hmm. which, you know, it had, they had the great big food trough. But that was some of the the very few things that were being made from scratch in that restaurant were things like potato salad and macaroni salad and, and you know, making them by the five-gallon buckets. And they never really let me get too deep into that because I was young, but, uh, that was my favorite place to work in the restaurant. You weren't qualified
0: to stir bowls of mayonnaise. I know.
2: (laughs) I know. I was not, I was disqualified to be sexually harassed every single day of my life. (laughs) That's why I was there. I was 16 with big boobs. So, yeah. Um, so, yeah, it was, you know, they're throwing steaks on the grill. That's, and not, you know, good quality steaks. That's That was the extent of it. Lots of breaded and fried things. Um, gravy from a packet, which, you know, I'm from Sedalia, but my family's from further south. And that's just sacrilegious from, from my family's standpoint. Right. So, it's like there's better ways to do this. So, and, is your family
0: from Arkansas or...
2: No, no, my mom's side is from a little bitty town um, down around the Springfield area. Okay. So close, but not quite. They are very Ozarkian, though. Um, no, my, my grandparents are still living. Uh, granny is 92. Grandpa is almost 94 and she still cooks. So t- which,
0: well, tell me about gravy from there. I mean, <laughs> what's the, what's the family gravy?
2: family gravy does not come from a fucking powder
0: right
2: (laughs) no it's i I swear i was born knowing how to make gravy um you know the main one fried chicken and um biscuits and gravy the -hmm. two different you know with biscuits and gravy it is the fat you start with is from the sausage Right. You know, you cook your breakfast sausage, you mix in the flour, you get it just right, you pour in the milk, you cook it down, lots and lots of black pepper. Right. And it's got to be thick. I mean, you should be able to hang wallpaper with this.
0: It is. It's a paper mache, basically. Yeah.
2: (laughs) Yeah. But in a really flavorful, good way. I mean, you can taste the pork, and you've got the pepper, and that creaminess, and then velvetiness. Um, Even though it is this super thick um and if you're if you're
0: lucky it was a local pig
2: yeah if it was lucky if you were lucky it was somebody in your family raised the pig um which my mom's side of the family which they're the ones who have the ridiculously long-standing genes um they were not farmers that was my dad's side so yeah i did grow up um you know, my parents would get a side of beef from my grandparents for Christmas every year until my grandfather died. Wow. So, yeah, I grew up with that. I grew up with people who gardened. I don't. I don't like it. I'm not outdoorsy. Um, but I grew up canning things, you know, putting food up because you didn't want to have to buy the grocery store crap to eat in the winter.
0: Right. Right.
2: And, you know, my family still does that. My mom is 70 years old, and she's still doing that. My grandmother is still doing that. Yeah, the thing Uh,
0: about that is it requires effort.
2: So much (laughs) effort. (laughs) It requires,
0: it requires, it's so much easier to just go and buy something, you know?
2: (laughs) It is. It is. And, you know, (laughs) I I do plenty of that, too. Um, Because I, I, Well, and this goes back to culinary school. I asked about canning in culinary school 18 years ago, and the teacher's like, nobody does that anymore. I went to eight different stores looking for a canner. I went on this mission that I was going to preserve this dying art, and I'm glad I did. And, you know, I've done it. I've sold my canned goods, not legally, because, again, I have worked on the fringes of the entire system. Right. Um, the whole time with doing underground dinners and catering out of my house. you got to cut overhead. Yeah. Yeah. And I was I, I don't like debt. I didn't want to go into debt for something that would likely fail if I went into debt. Right. Um, so, it's like, yeah, I'll just work here on the outer edges. And kind of keep a low profile, and we'll see what happens. But, yeah, this – this I don't know if I'll can anything this year. I took a break last year, and it was so nice. And so I probably won't do it this year. So the, it might die. The art might die. I Somebody else needs If you stop. <laughs> <laughs> Except I've taught so many canning classes now. And that's the only – I do take that back. I will – I have several – canning classes scheduled for the summer so the art will continue to live and that's how it's going to live is because I'm teaching other people to do it
0: are you um doing any fermentation as well or
2: Uh, not currently but um I got into that about four years ago which um well here I'll go for it I, I, I got out of cooking um when my daughter was two um I was literally catering with her on my hip Until she could walk. And then at that point I said, yeah, fuck this. I'm done. I'm tired. And I stayed home with her and wrote. I did some freelancing. I blogged. This was back before there was a lot of pay-to-play blogging. Um, And I had enough readership that I could sell ads at that point. um, And make a decent living. Um, Her dad He's always been in in the picture, so um, so yeah, that worked. And when she went back to when she went to school, um, the RFT hired me. I wrote about food and music for them for years. Got burned out. Went off. Wrote a book about Woody Guthrie. That's another story. Um, and then four years ago, after I thought I was finished with the book, <laughs> not so much. Um, well, a cute boy asked me if I wanted to do an underground dinner and I told him he was out of his mind mm-hmm. he was also 15 years younger than me Right. I, I had turned 40 a few months before that and I'm like no no fuck you no
0: uh,
2: <laughs> but he came to me and he was an urban farmer and he's like I have all these beets we need to what am I going to do with all these beets I'm like well I'll tell you what you can do with your beets right. but if you want to actually use them don't push uh, them toward me <laughs> Right, <laughs> right. I don't want 900 pounds of beets um, But I started talking I spent a day, like, we were texting And I was telling him No, we're not going to do an underground dinner With all of your surplus beets But here's how you can make pickles out of them And you can can them Or you can ferment them I haven't actually done this But this is what I know And, um, and I realized after exchanging those texts That this was fun This, if I enjoyed um figuring out what to do with the, all these beets and telling him what to do with all these beets and so have you ever and, tried
0: um you ever had kvass the uh, fermented oh the
2: the beet juice yeah the fermented beet juice yes i have well <laughs>
0: yeah. now yeah the beet the, the beet kvass the beet juice is not the right. only way to do it like they make it from yeah. stale bread and raisins and and such too like the most oh, kvass God. that you buy is like like commercially produced Russian and Ukrainian kvass, is, oh, yeah. it comes from bread. It, it's yeah. basically like a sour sweet soda. But yeah. like, um, I actually I, have I yeah I did I did try beet kvass, and I know that mm-hmm. it's like wildly popular and apparently <laughs> probiotic. But like,
2: yes, it will save your life.
0: Yeah, when I think kvass, <laughs> I don't think beet kvass. I think like yeah. stale bread water. You know? Oh
2: God! Yeah. Yeah, now now that you mentioned that, yeah, I remember seeing that, but I, I gravitated more towards the beet version uh-huh. because that sounds tasty. The still bread version does not. <laughs> so
1: Oh that's
0: good. It's like a it's like a an adult Pepsi.
2: That makes sense.
0: Yeah.
2: Yeah. Well and that's in doing this dinner, because we started planning this in May and we decided to do it in October, it's like I had to figure out how to preserve everything. For, to have for this dinner and there's only so many pickles you can can so that's when I dove into fermentation and
0: hold on let me um, jot that down only yeah. so many pickles you can can <laughs> All right.
2: although we did have a pickle course the first course was a pickle beer tasting course uh, oh that sounds because I, it was it was um, because he had 8 million pounds of fucking cucumbers um, I figured out a brine uh, that was food safe cannibal. As in, well, no, there weren't people eating each other. This dinner was actually vegan, so scratch the cannibal part. Uh, I could can these pickles in this brine and have them not be toxic, um, where the brine was half beer. And huh. so I did. I think five different beers did pickles in five different beers. And so that first course was a tasting where we started with the lightest with a Hefeweizen pickled pickle and then worked our way up to the double IPA. Um, But yeah, before it was all said and done, um, the fermentation thing wasn't even something that I went looking for, but it was not long after the initial beat conversation uh, my alarm clock went off one morning and Splendid Table was on, and they were interviewing Karen Solomon, who uh, – she's based in the San Francisco area, and she's a food writer. Um, I can't remember which paper she writes for off the top of my head. Um, Chronicle? But I No.
0: Someone I, can Google it.
2: Someone can Google it, Karen Solomon. She might not even be doing the journalism thing anymore because. Karen
0: Solomon of the Saskatchewan (laughs) Solomons? (laughs) Apparently not. The uh, San Francisco Solomon. The San Francisco (laughs) Solomon. She
2: might have started out in Saskatchewan because, (laughs) who knows, San Francisco is a town of transplants. But anyway, um, at the time, she was publishing through Amazon a series of eBooks, and each one was broken up. They were broken up by country and culture, and she was just going through all these different Asian pickles. I like that. And so it was, a, and I got up that morning at you know, it was enough to get me out of bed. That's saying something. And I immediately went to my computer and bought every one of them. She had Japan pickles, China pickles, India, um, Southeast Asia. She kind of lumped in, you know thailand and vietnam and um and the philippines and
0: what was she selling the e-books for like a buck
2: oh they were maybe three yeah
0: well, that's
2: pretty yeah good. yeah well and then uh before it was all said and done they were so popular that she did get a book deal and published them all as this beautiful hardcover book called asian pickles mm-hmm. um, so which- someone
0: harnessed her energy and put it to their <laughs> own evil ends
2: of course, because that's how everything works.
0: Once she demonstrated that she was independently capable,
2: <laughs> somebody said, "Here, we'll do that for you. We'll take our cut." Yeah, yeah. Uh, it is a beautiful book, though, and there's stuff in it that wasn't in the um, that wasn't in the e-books. But yeah, I, I hope she made out well with that. She's written some other cookbooks since then, and you know, they're are great. I've, I think I have all of them at this point, but um, but yeah, just... So your book,
0: her, oh, go ahead, go oh, ahead.
2: But, well, her books were... Um, I mean, there were recipes in them, but so much of it was about technique, fermentation technique, and history, and all the different ways. You know, how in Japan they'll bury uh, what they're fermenting in rice bran. And, right. And whereas in Korea, you're going to... You know, submerge it in water and bury it in the ground. And and in all the fermentation classes I teach, someone inevitably has to ask me if I've ever made kimchi and buried it in my yard. Like, no. The reason it was buried in yards in Korea is because it was when they didn't have refrigeration. Right. And they would bury it to keep it at a stable temperature through the winter.
0: And you don't want it to get too cold because then it won't it won't ferment. It,
2: Because it kills the bacteria, right? And in the summer, if it gets too hot, it gets out of control. Right. So, if you bury it in a clay jar, it's going to be a stable temperature, or at least more so than, you know, sitting on the counter. So, so no, you don't have to dig a hole in your backyard to make kimchi anymore. And it doesn't make it any less authentic to do it on your countertop. I do it in a
0: five-gallon bucket.
2: Yeah. I've done it in... um, Glass jars, I've done it in God, whatever container I can get that's narrow at the top that I can weigh down. Right. I mean, because that's all there is to it. but but yeah, for this dinner, um, when we were trying to we had around fifty five people, um, we did six courses, vegan, and because I hadn't cooked professionally in six years, so you know, let's make it easy. <laughs> and I sourced about eighty percent of it from this little urban farm in Dogtown. And it involved standing in that garden in August in the middle of the night with both of us on our phones Googling, are daikon greens toxic?
0: <laughs> because he was growing
2: daikons to convert the soil. And it's like there are so many greens. They put out like a shrub each.
0: I it's think like, they're okay, it, aren't they?
2: Yes, they are. And I know this because we Googled it. <laughs> and so, of course, it's right. Oh, Google. Um, but then I took. Greens and I made kimchi out of them and served it as part of the second course for the dinner. Free and money, and no one died. Yeah,
0: and no one died. Free you know money, what? right there. Oh my god, no one died. And
2: No one died. Like <laughs> that was
0: um, there was a movie <laughs> with Jackie Gleason in the I guess early '60s, maybe. <laughs> I can't remember what it was, but the whole the premise of it was. <laughs> there was jackie gleason was a caterer and uh-huh. his why well, i can't remember who oh, god, his I don't wife know this was one. oh it's great but one of my favorite and i can't remember the title of it i'm gonna have to look it up but he was a caterer and yeah um <laughs> the wife was talking to him about an event that got that went off and she said well at least no one died and jackie gleason goes that'll <laughs> be our slogan for the company
2: <laughs> at, at least no one died oh god i wish i'd named I wish I had named... That'll be my next company. At least no one died. (laughs) (laughs) Brilliant. Because, yeah, that was kind of the... I hate to say it, but, yeah, that was kind of the, mm, okay, well, we'll try this all out as we go. We're both fine. Well, you know, and
0: We'll I see can, how our
2: guest's immune systems are.
0: When you're working on the fringe, too, and without insurance, liability, or anything like that. <laughs> now, when I lived yeah. in Portland, I lived in Portland, and in 2009, beginning of <laughs> 2009, me. this is right after the mm-hmm. economy tanked, and, like, you yeah. know, jobs were going down the toilet everywhere, and i was suddenly let go from my cooking job um and i was like screw this this happens every time a boss is not making enough money and it's like it doesn't matter how hard i work i am losing jobs every Mm -hmm. time you know christmas comes around i work my ass off through the holidays and then they're like oh there's no more work sorry You know, but like,
2: yeah, everybody's gone in January, right? Uh,
0: We have no more need of your services. So, but I lost a job (sighs) and I was like, screw this. I immediately walked up the street to Kitchen Caboodle. This is in Northwest Portland. Mm -hmm. I bought a meat grinder and I started making sausages that (laughs) night. And there
2: you go. I built
0: I built a smoker, a cold smoker, on my back porch on the deck, uh-huh. and I started selling um sausages and smoked meats that I made in my apartment. <laughs> um, awesome. at bars out of a briefcase and I had a cutting board yep. and a knife in my briefcase and yeah, then you
2: could have maybe invested in a cooler. <laughs>
0: Well, you know, I wanted to demonstrate that they were that they were shelf stable <laughs> even though I didn't really know if they were or Perfect, not. Of course. But it's like selling that stuff to drunk people was fairly easy. Yeah. Um I mean, it was tasty oh, yeah. and you know you get a cutting board out and you're sitting on a patio and You know, it was, I guess it was by springtime and everybody was out on patios by that time. I'd sit there with a cutting board and people would be walking by and they just, they, it was like, I was at the grocery store running a sample (laughs) table. But, um, so I did that for a good while before I finally started graduating into pop-up dinners. But, um, Yeah. yeah, when you're doing that, it's like, okay, um, Every time you make a batch, it's like let's see what let's spin the wheel on this one. Let's see if anybody comes after me <laughs> with a lawsuit when you know yeah. they crap the wrong way or, or something like that. So it was it was always yep. um, you know a crapshoot, so to speak.
2: <laughs> it's it's kind of uh, scary. But at the same time, it is. It's it is scary, scary but, but exciting. At the same time. <laughs> Scary, but exciting. And also, I don't know. I mean, I would like to think that I'm going to be as conscientious about food quality and safety in a restaurant as I am on my own. But when you are working without that safety net, which man, is you're just insurance, make sure. really.
0: and it's like you're, I, yeah. I found myself working twice as diligently to ensure that yep. everything I was doing was completely sanitized and yep. temperatures and everything. And it's like when you don't have that level of insurance. Um, yeah. Which you know you're working with zero insurance, then yeah. you're that much more careful. Actually, in many cases, than people who are working in restaurants. Absolutely, you know, and they've got their well, and that's they've got their hands in their ass on break when they're smoking and stuff. You know? <laughs>
2: right, right, and you know, I've I've found that, um, yeah, I it, I it was really kind of a shock after doing pop ups on my own. Uh, for a few years, because like I said, that was four years ago, and we jokingly called it Subterranean Homemade Foods, as a because it was subterranean underground, right? And it was all homemade and it was food, and it was a riff on Subterranean Homesick Blues, because I just finished this year of writing about Woody Guthrie oh, and I see Bob what Dylan you did there. overlaps in that. I get it. See what I did there? <laughs> yeah, and if you've ever seen my business cards, um, Darren Snow drew my logo for me, which is a caricature of me um, as Dylan in the Subterranean Homesick Blues video. Holding the card with my business name on it. Yeah. I make a very good Dylan, by the way. Uh, It's the curly hair. But.
0: um, Well, now let's go to this. Yeah, it was. Let's go to this Woody Guthrie book. Go for it. Um, <laughs> okay. We want to talk about that. Is this uh, available somewhere, or you are redoing it?
2: I'm not. I am. And I've, said, I've been saying this for five years, but this time I mean it. It's almost done. Um, as in today, I booked my last trip to the Guthrie Archives in Tulsa. Um, I'm leaving in ten days uh, to go back down to dig through Woody and his wife's letters. Um, but, yeah, what happened – was uh 2012 was his centennial, and I probably would not have given a shit one way or another. Except at in November of 2011, I quit the RFT and a flame of glory just boom. Oh, you were I'm there for that. You were I'm there gone. until
0: that recently.
2: Yeah, I was a freelancer though. Right. I I prided myself on never setting foot in the office.
0: Right. I did the same thing. I was <laughs> there for, design? I guess, yes. two years, 2003 to
2: 2005. Okay. But, yeah. Oh, okay. I would have read. I was trying to get in then, but didn't. Um, I was there from 2009 until um, late 2011, although I kind of weaseled my way in here and there um, from a few times after that. Um, but yeah, I did. Uh, I wrote for the food blog once it from you know the beginning when it started back in two thousand and nine um, and kind of weaseled my way into the music section too, and burned out, got fed up, was very not happy with uh, the editor I was working under, and I love editors, an editor's job is to make me not look like an idiot, so the fact that I'm saying I did not like this editor. Says something. Okay. Um, but I had left that. I was unemployed. Uh, my personal life was kind of going to hell. And I was on the verge of turning 40. And I'm like, well, shit, by the end of 2012, I'm going to be living in a studio apartment working at Walmart if I'm lucky at the rate I'm going. And or a you friend could of mine who was Walmart. also, that would have, that probably would have been a better policy i would have had nicer stuff maybe
0: cut your overhead that's
2: where i was in my life i know i know and and yeah let's be honest i don't like paperwork i probably would have just camped out somewhere (laughs) as long as it was indoors i'm indoorsy let's don't forget that but um a friend of mine on new year's eve posted a blog entry about woody guthrie's new year's Rulins. and it was um a piece that he had written on new year's eve 1942 that had gone viral it was released in anticipation of his centennial year and it was cute it was sweet it was thoughtful and um i texted this friend of mine who posted about it and said hey we should do something for the centennial just to get people to look at woody beyond this land is your land i knew next to nothing about him um The only reason I was interested was, one, I needed to distract myself from the shit show that my life had become, and two, all these bands that I liked had connections back to him. Um, I wasn't a Dylan fan at the time. That's also funny. That didn't come until later, but, you know. Now, are you talking like uh,
0: No Depression bands or like Mm -hmm. Uncle Tupelo and stuff like that? Yeah. Okay.
2: Oh yeah. Well, in the Clash. The Clash was okay. a big one for me. Because, yeah, Joe Strummer's first stage name was uh, Woody Meller, which Joe's real name was Joe Meller, and he named himself after Woody. Okay. Originally, and you know, I buried myself in that, and also being a an Uncle Tupelo and Wilco fan, um, the Mermaid Avenue albums.
0: So for it's the like, folks I love at home, these, I don't for the fo- yes. for the folks at home who were born yes. you know f- less than 20 years ago um Woody oh <laughs> Woody Guthrie uh was and you mm-hmm. may finish my sentence here
2: He was the father of American folk music and so much more um he was from Oklahoma and was a part of the dust bowl era in that during the Depression, um, made the migration out to California with the Okies, but not as a farm worker, as a musician. Um, Had a radio show out there. Wrote This Land is Your Land, which apparently some schools are still teaching to their elementary students. My daughter learned it from me, uh, not from her school. And so I don't know how prominent that is anymore. Um, That's... People have this caricature of him that kind of ends at that point. He's this Oki, this folk character who hopped trains and wrote This Land is Your Land, which is a patriotic We Love America song.
0: And he it's lived not. on pork and beans.
2: Uh, he lived... Actually, no. He lived on... Oh, I just learned this last... Two weeks ago. Um, rum and cigarettes. Um,
0: rum and cigarettes? But yes.
2: He... <laughs> Rum and cigarettes. That's a fantastic yes. diet. <laughs> I know. Well, the God, biggest, I wish I could pull that. Uh, off. He was I well, he was born with the gene for Huntington's disease, so it didn't really matter what he ate or drank or consumed. He was fucked because of the genetic hand he was dealt. So, um he had this other part of his life that he moved to New York in 1940 and spent the rest of his life there. He only had about 15 years of his of a productive career of writing, and he, he wrote songs, he wrote books, he wrote plays, he wrote everything. He wrote constantly, uh, as I found out firsthand in January, um, in a big way. But um, he. If you really dig in, he's really kind of this American Renaissance man who, you know, he's been listed as, you know, he's been blamed as being a commie and all that dirty socialist stuff. Well, no, because he didn't like any organizations of any sort.
0: Because he was nice.
2: Um, <laughs> <laughs> well, that, that could be debated,
0: that too. That faggot. He's <laughs> nice. That fucking faggot. I'm going to stomp
2: his ass <laughs> into the ground.
0: Says nice things about people.
2: I know But anyway um, So this friend of mine And I we came up with this idea I came up with the idea He went along with it Of let's get people to read Bound for Glory Which was a book that Woody published In 1943 um, It was billed at the time As being his, bio- his autobiography uh, It isn't It's um, Now I think they're referring to it as a fictionalized Autobiography if you can figure out what that means.
0: Oh, I'm writing Uh, one of those.
2: (laughs) Uh, Yeah, I know. Aren't we all? (laughs) So, um, we wanted to get people to read bound for glory and specifically musicians and writers and artists and political people, especially people in the labor movement. Um, and we were, we started a blog and we were going to publish their reactions and like with anything, As I'm sure you know, when you first say, yeah, we want people to do this. Who wants to play? Yay, I do. Fifty people chime in. And two weeks later, one person is interested. So, okay, that's fine. My life is falling apart. I buried myself in that book and went through line by line and was just – and it's not the type of thing I would read. I don't – I never cared about Depression-era hobos. Mm. That's not my thing. But I was just I realized now I was looking for something. It's like give me something to hold on to, give me something to make my to make me think. Give me a clue as to what I'm going to do next. Well, yeah, I mean, and the, the of a act a sudden, of
0: research just kind of, you know, it, it's, I have always found that it's like, well, I need to get my brain onto something here to, you know, keep a yeah. hold on reality. And it's like, I might as well learn something. Yes. I'm going to focus on this, you know, whether it's research <laughs> exactly. or whatever. It's like, I totally get that, you know. But, Absolutely. Um,
2: well, and you know. I have a lifelong history of depression and anxiety and I know that the worst the worst things for my depression and my anxiety are for me to let my brain go idle
0: ruminating
2: you know that whole well that whole the whole idea of mindfulness even really does not work for me that well because I will get lost in there and I will not come back and and not in a good way and so the, I mean I just Buried myself in this and reading this book, thinking about it, thinking about the musicians and the music and finding how this all ties together and why there's any meaning in it for me. And I started finding these threads, these connections. Um, And I just wrote about it, just read and wrote. And then by March of that year, um, I noticed that some events were popping up around the country. Well, specifically, there was one in Tulsa, Oklahoma, which I never – ever figured i would ever go to tulsa for anything because why would i mm, yeah. but there was a symposium. yeah there, there was um a series called yeah i um, about to make my third trip there since of 2018 so um but yeah they were um the grammy museum and the guthrie archives we're doing a series called Woody at 100 where they were doing academic symposiums and tribute concerts in the cities that were a big part of his life. Sounds, sounds fun. Yeah. Let's go to Tulsa and sit in an academic symposium about a hobo. And I did. And it was, and it was great. Was like These are my people. So this was at oh the archives. The archives were in New York at the time. Okay. Um, they act. I was there when they announced that the archives were moving to Tulsa because that was – I finagled the job through another writer to cover this for the RFT where I had just burned every bridge that existed.
0: I think that's generally um, how people leave the RFT.
2: Yeah. Yeah, you well, probably. All the and then you find I may or may not, not cut the that top. out,
0: but it's from. Yeah, <laughs> that's kind of how people stop writing for the RFT. It's in a, oh, it a blaze it of is. glory.
2: <laughs> oh yes, I, I've seen many, many of the blazes of glory, and yes, I created one. It was a small one because I was a freelancer. But um, from there, though, these events just started landing at my feet, and I had no money. I had my daughter was eight. At the time, I and I just said, Yeah, I'm gonna show up again. Bad at saying no, um, but I, God, I showed up in Chicago um, to see Billy Bragg. He was doing two shows of Woody, two nights of Woody songs. I showed, I bought a bus ticket and got a cheap hotel, went up there with no ticket to the show, and wound up hanging out living. And talking about Woody. Oh, wow. Um, I wound up in Woody's tiny little hometown in Oklahoma the day before his birthday, hanging out first with homeless street musicians and talking to them and then hanging out with Billy again. And before it was all said and done, I had made multiple trips to Oklahoma, trips to shows in Chicago and Iowa and Ohio and all the vowel states. Um I wound up in Salinas, California. That's where I met Woody's daughter. We shared a package of tissues while a musician, who's now a good friend of mine, uh, did a gut-wrenching version of one of her dad's songs. I hear
0: Salinas is Uh, nice.
2: I was (laughs) – the rumors are not true. Um, No. Um, A good friend of mine is out there. Somebody that – she had read my blog when I was mommy blogging years before. I had never met her. And but we had talked and she liked my writing and every year she would ask me, Are you coming out to the Steinbeck Festival? Like, I love John Steinbeck, but I cannot afford a trip to California to geek out with Steinbeck people. Right. And that year she asked me, it was right after I got back from that Tulsa trip, so are you coming to the Steinbeck Festival? It's like I can't And she said, What if I told you half of it was going to be related to Woody Guthrie? And I Googled it because again, Google is never wrong. And to make sure she wasn't fucking with me. And she wasn't. She was the editor-in-chief of the Monterey County Weekly.
0: Holy hell. And I'm
2: as good as I... (laughs) Yeah. Well, and as good as I am about saying yes to ridiculous shit, I'm really bad about asking to do ridiculous shit. And that day I decided I'm going to ask to do something ridiculous. And after I found out that, yes, this event is, is legit... I asked her, it's like, can you make it worth my while, Madam Editor? And she said, indeed, I can. And I had the cover story on the Monterey County Weekly um, the day the festival started. Oh, that's and awesome. wound up going out just to hang out. Yeah. I mean, and that same weekend, the Monterey County Weekly won um, for the California Journalism Association. Um, my friend I was gone one day because she was off accepting their best paper with the circulation under whatever number um, beating out the alt weeklies in LA and San Francisco and everywhere in between so it's like I got paid to write the cover story for this award winning newspaper and spent four days with a stranger from the internet because I stayed at her house and she didn't make a code out of me you know she might the next time (laughs) she's not she's awesome um and met Woody's daughter, who is the person who I now have to ask copyright permission from. Because my book, I, tra- I wound up traveling that whole year. The book is about that year. And, you know, I set it aside. It's been re-edited. And I've had editors telling me, it's ready. Publish it. It's good. It's ready. And I, I knew it wasn't, but I didn't know why. And Do
0: you know why now? I would
2: go back to Tulsa once. Oh, Absolutely. Um last year um after Trump was elected it suddenly seemed very imperative to get this book out there not that it's going to change the world it's not not that it's going to change our government it's not but it just it we I, I fight evil because it's evil where,
0: <laughs> you know
2: right. not, we f- you, <laughs> right.
0: we fight evil because you don't you know Not because you think you're going to win, but because that's what you do.
2: But because. Because you have to. Right. Exactly. And um, so, yeah, coming up at the beginning of 2017, I'm like, I have this manuscript, this 400-page manuscript that is very well written, if I do say so myself, that I've been told already can be published. And it needs something. And it needs to be out there now. And what I figured was the book you know, it's the travels of that year. It's like Woody wrote things in every place he went, and he was in all of these places. So I'm going to see if they will let me research in the archives, and I'll get postcards or letters or whatever that he wrote in these cities that tie in thematically with what I wrote. And it took me a while to get the guts to apply because I'm a big chicken. And it's mostly academics who do that. And I have seven years of college education and not a single degree. Uh, so um, had some serious imposter syndrome going on and wound up in all these trips going down to Tulsa. I would kind of hang in the background at these events at the archives and the museum. And each time I would go, it's like I would let somebody grab me by the elbow and pull me in a little closer and a little closer until – Last year, I was down there and I met three professors who are three of the biggest Guthrie scholars. One of them is the one who published the article about Woody writing about Trump's dad when Trump was his when he was Woody's landlord. Um, when that guy is saying, you need to do this.
0: oh Let me now, help you. Yeah. Now I'm seeing the thread. I just remembered about that.
2: <laughs> yeah. That's right. It's like, OK, I'm getting a. Yeah, he offered to read my manuscript for me last year. And then that same day, I'm sitting with David Amram, the musician who, you know, has composed some of the great American, you know, compositions and who put music to Jack Kerouac's poetry as he read it. And he's telling me, this sounds great. You need to do this. And so I went to the archives for the first time in January and I. I just started. I had, you know, this list of stuff I wanted to look at, just trying to pinpoint when I've got a good idea of when he was in these places. And the very first notebook I picked up took me to a hard left and it had nothing to do with what i went in there to get and it was perfect um when i transported
0: because here yeah i (laughs) i'm fascinated with the idea of going into the archives of this extremely prolific luminary um i i mean just even pouring over one single notebook of just you know these random moments that occurred in this completely disconnected time and space and it's like you know even if it wasn't woody guthrie i would think that was freaking fascinating
2: you know well and i mean i love and as a music lover man i've made so many trips to the rock and roll hall of fame in cleveland to see exhibits just to look at people's just to look at you know Joe Strummer's handwritten lyrics to "Clamp Down" and to stand there and cry because that's what I do.
0: Various DNA and, samples, you know, <laughs> got to be a fingernail and here or
2: there. I, I, he touched this, yeah. There, there is a moment of that, but you know, it's so funny. And that I spent two weeks in the archives, and I did not touch a single paper that Woody wrote. I could have, but everything that I needed was digitized. Mm-hmm. And everything he wrote was in these cheap, the little black and white speck composition books that you can still buy for under a buck.
0: Love them. That's
2: what he wrote in. And he would fill one a day. And those are digitized. It's like, that paper is going to fall apart. I'm going to cry on it. I will just use the digitized version. I'm fine with that. Yeah, so, I mean,
0: there's really no point in touching done. the stuff anymore. But do they do they offer? Yeah. They have gloves if people do want to touch them. I mean, oh yeah, yeah. I mean, oh, wh- yeah, yeah. Wh- Why would anybody even? I don't know.
2: <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's um, at this point if it's digitized, uh, yeah, I want to look at the digitized stuff. But um, what I found uh, before it was all said and done. I found this series of notebooks, these composition notebooks, that he wrote over a three-week period at the end of 1942, beginning of 1943. And he was in a situation. Uh, he was living in New York City in Greenwich Village, looked up the address because he wrote it on everything, um, Googled, used Google Maps, and found out where he was living was two blocks south of the Village Vanguard and two blocks north of the Stonewall Inn. He was living in the middle of history before it happened.
0: Hmm.
2: And I was just kind of fascinated with that. And he was living a block from the street that I was walking lost when I was there researching him, with no clue that he lived around the corner. Um, but this series, the, he had fallen in love with this woman named Marjorie, who was a dancer with the Martha Graham Company. Marjorie was married to a man who was a metallurgist in Philadelphia.
0: That's awesome.
2: Uh, that was awesome. They had a sexless marriage. Martha was, or Martha, Marjorie was on the road with a dance company. Uh, Woody had been hired by Martha Graham to do some composing for them. He was not a composer. He had dancers crashing into each other because he never played anything the same way twice. Um, <laughs> marjorie I just, literally I, just,
0: I love that mental image like,
2: <laughs> well what's really cool is reading that reading the writing about that middle image as it was happening that this is how they met <laughs> because she was very orderly and she was able to work with him and with the dancers to get them all on the same beat and, and everything he touched turned to shit <laughs> <laughs> pretty much <laughs> um she got pregnant and in a
0: sexless marriage
2: her husband no not from the sexless sexless marriage oh, from I, oh the, yeah um, i see from our little hobo friend okay yeah yeah they had a little fling um she went back to her husband because this was, the U.S. had been in World War II for about a year at this point. And, you know, we, we tend to have this image of that time period that, you know, it's all the USO girls. And no, it was scary. It was some scary shit. Akin to this kind of scary shit we're living in now. And so she went back to her husband. They had a, Enough of a sex life to somewhat kind of pass off. It maybe the baby was his. Um, he had a premature ejaculation problem, oh. which I know because Woody Woody wrote an entire notebook about it. Oh.
0: That, <laughs> that, that, he that wrote an entire notebook right about about his premature
2: wrote, ejaculation. Okay. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so <laughs> Mar- Marjorie has moved back with Joe. To figure out, and she's trying to decide which life she's going to live with her child. Um, but she went back to Joe because he was able to afford health care.
0: So it's Woody with the On premature... salary, she couldn't. It's Woody with the premature huh? ejaculation?
2: No, it was the husband.
0: But Woody was writing about the husband. Woody husbands. did not have that problem. Okay.
2: Woody... Okay, so they're exchanging these letters, and Woody's are entire notebooks. And in one of them, he wrote he told marjorie give this to joe and he wrote this entire section about i understand what your problem is and i want to do everything i can to give you and marjorie the best chance of making things work here's how you stop this problem and then it's pages of Woody's advice on how to um keep things going long enough for everybody to have a good time
0: (laughs) wow and there were brilliant there were men there were men that were actually concerned about that back then
2: Well, there was one.
0: Well, there was at least one. There was one. There's a notebook dedicated (laughs) to
2: it. Yes. Oh, actually, there was another notebook, too, because he had one that he called his Bad Thoughts book, where he wrote the things that he did not want to foist onto Marjorie. And he writes this whole little play about him and some character that he meets in one of the Oaky Dust Bowl camps, who's just this total chump. And... He's giving him yeah. the same advice that he was giving very nicely in the letter to his beloved's husband. <laughs> so anyway, I'm reading these, and Woody is hitting on damn near every theme in my book. Um, it goes from that to joking about – they gave the baby a name and a personality, and he was his name was Railroad Pete, and he was this – tobacco chewing fascist fighting i was
0: just gonna say cigar jumping baby
2: (laughs) no no tobacco chewing there was a spittoon an in utero spittoon involved (laughs) and it was hilarious so of course i had to go find marjorie's letters in response and they were just as good and but I, by the time I figured that out, I only had a couple of days left um, on my research time. So I'm going back to get the rest of her letters. And the plan is um, taking my manuscript, I've whittled it down, and I'm dropping their correspondence into it as a second narrative over this three-week period of their lives where they cover everything. There's there, One minute they're talking about the spittoon spitting embryo fetus I don't know what it was at that stage to the letters was a life. to her husband it was a life there's and then there's pages about Woody's theories on identity his theories on loneliness and why it is the best thing and the worst thing and God, that that part just hit me at my core because it was everything I needed to know in 2012 when I hit the road and I just sat there and went, "God damn it, this is it." He just summed up my book.
0: So, what's in um, the, what yeah. kind of? Oh, go ahead. I didn't mean to interrupt.
2: Oh, <laughs> uh, in the middle of the notebooks, and I didn't realize this um, until like the second day in. I, start, I kind of put together the date on the notebook, and I went, "Wait a minute." The series of notebooks that I found, dead center, were the New Year's rulings. What I had tapped into, I thought it had been—it was just a standalone little thing he had jotted down. Now, what I had wandered into was one side of the iceberg, with the New Year's ruins at the peak, which is what set me out on this journey. I hate the word journey, and then I found the other side of the iceberg. So, (laughs) so yeah, that's what my book is.
0: Great. Do you um I you know you probably aren't setting a deadline for publication, but how are you publishing? Are you actually going with a publisher, or are you going to yeah. self-publish? Okay, you are going to go with a publisher. Uh,
2: yeah. At this point, as much as, well, I don't, but as as much as I hate, I, I'm a DIY person. Clearly, I mean.
0: Well, you make let's your own look pickles. At my food business
2: again, huh? Yeah. Yeah. Make my own pickles. I'm digging a hole in the yard to make kimchi. Not really. Uh, but yeah, um, I, I don't like corporations. <laughs> I don't like I'm not a capitalist. And yet I feel like I've put so much into this that I want to do whatever I can to get it into as many hands as possible. Yeah. I'm never going to see a profit on it. I, I know that I get that. I'm OK with that. I'm privileged enough that I can do that. I can go teach some cooking classes and make sure that I have a roof over my head and that my kids covered. Um yeah, I think like
0: but well yeah. like when I wrote my book it's like at first that all right, you know, I wrote about Dalmatian cuisine, you know, which is like right. a totally obscure subject and I you know yeah, but when I, love I that. when I started the project it was like 2000 late 2005 and I was like, well First of mm-hmm. all, this hasn't been done. There's nothing like it. Well, as it turns out, right. in publishing, when something hasn't been done, there's a reason it hasn't been done, <laughs> right. because it's an obscure subject yes. that that nobody's going to buy. But I didn't think...
2: I, and, well, and agents are afraid of that. Like, well, I don't know how to sell this. Well, they do
0: work on commission. Oh, okay. So, it, you know, and right. but I thought, well, the fact that it hasn't been touched is the reason it needs to be done, you know, and, yeah. and to... this. Is Yeah, because the books of the world—that is the—that's the archive of humanity. You know, it's got—it's got to be done. So
2: right, and we can only have so many repeats. Right. Well, and cookbooks especially try to sell early on. Right. Oh God, yeah. Because I mean, how how many books does the pioneer woman need? I mean, come on, or Thai cooking that many recipes? Right. Right. It's yeah. See, if I had known, I still need to get your book, because I didn't know it existed until just a few months ago. I'm like, yeah, this is totally something I would buy. It's available from collection. There you go. I opened that up right for you. Thank you. (laughs)
0: Yeah, you should have put a big red bow on that. Um,
2: (laughs) Yeah, there you go. I'll go buy it today. Well, I
0: presented it in a really, I presented it in a totally, I didn't, you know, there's no photographs in it. There's not even an index in mm-hmm. it. It's basically... I, oh,
2: God, and that pisses people off. They can't handle that. I, uh,
0: I can't find anything. Well, use your hands and page through the book. And read. And read. Yeah. And, you know, it is divided read. into sections. Yes. But, you know, the way, I, <laughs> the way I translated a lot of these recipes, too, it's like I wanted this to come off as... Almost like a collection of note cards that you would find in, yeah. or pages that you would find in a stone house in a fishing village on the Dalmatian yes. coast. You know, and it's like, but it just happens to be bound. You know, but these are right. right you know, that's what I wanted to get across, and I think I succeeded. But I probably cool. did because well, as, if if sales are any indication. <laughs> <laughs> or the lack of sales thereof that I succeeded in presenting something totally unconventional, then I believe I've succeeded,
2: yeah, well, and that's unconventional I like unconventional. I mean, clearly, I mean i've I've made a life out of being unconventional. There's only uh, so many wings because- and
0: burgers you can eat,
2: oh god, and and you know, I love good wings. I love good burgers, however, no there's wings a and burgers there. do not
0: a diet make
2: no sometimes you have to go to Tulsa and eat things that are chicken fried and covered in gravy and that's just the way life is
0: <laughs> so what's the plan here from um from uh, publishing do they have a date for the publishing
2: no because I have been very slow on that end uh because I didn't Early on, when I finished the manuscript initially, a couple of years ago, I did start shopping for an agent and I had agents who were interested. And what I would get was, because at that point it was somewhat memoir, somewhat Guthrie biography. And what I would get is agents who would say, it's well written and I like it, but I don't know enough about the memoir market to sell it. And that would be the agents who have sold music biographies, right? And then I would get the agents who have sold memoirs saying, "It's I, I like it. It's well written. I don't know enough about music to know how to sell it."
0: It's like a personal okay. It's like a personal injury lawyer who specializes in different parts of the back.
2: <laughs> right. Which and I right. know about, and, and that's what agents do too. <laughs> Oh, yeah, injuries. We still haven't gotten to injuries. Um, yeah. We I, might I have like, to say okay, that. There's this fine line. And I'm, just, oh, I know. We're going. I told you I'm a talker.
0: Um, <laughs> I love yeah, it. there's
2: this fine line. And I was straddling it a little too far. And with finding these um, letters and notebooks, it's like, okay, I'm tightening it up. And and it's, it's not a Woody Guthrie biography. And, you know, I, I put up called. Back in March, uh, just for anybody who wanted to read the first half, Uh, it's like it doesn't have – I'm not looking for hard edits. I'm not asking anybody to be a free editor. This was after I started dropping in the stuff from the memoirs. It's like I just need to know, is it interesting? Is it well written? Does it make sense? And um, it was really interesting that the response that I got – and this was mostly people that I know pretty well – who have a lot of them who have known me through this entire process and i had so many people come back and say i expected it to be much more of a woody guthrie biography but it's this instead and i like this
0: it's the tale of a journey
2: good oh god i just puked like a pregnant woman eating a mushroom in front of a class full of kids
0: (laughs) (laughs) my work is done here
2: Congratulations! That was a good one. Uh, yeah, it's the tale of a journey, <laughs> and the tale of how to cure uh, premature ejaculation.
0: Well, then it should sell very well.
2: I would think so. I mean, just just with those SEO words, it should.
0: <laughs>
2: <laughs> but yeah, I, I am at the point because with this last trip, because I booked it today. I t- wrapped up, got my uh, my dates from the archives today. Which for can you be down here for the twenty first of May? Yeah, I can make that happen. Um, uh, yeah, I just need to finish up whittling away the last little bit of my manuscript, and then kind of shifting around Woody and Marjorie's letters. And
0: so, no pun intended.
2: Mission to use that.
0: It's coming
2: <laughs> later than sooner. Yes.
0: Well, is there anything else that you wanted to to talk about before we go? Because I just unintentionally took a sip of my own urine from a coffee mug here, and I need to go rinse my mouth off.
2: <laughs> I think you just said it all right there. I'm laughing hard enough that it's frightening my dog so you go take care of that I think I'm good
0: <laughs> it has been really awesome talking to you
2: <laughs> thank you for giving me the opportunity to ramble at length
0: I can't wait to read the book and how do people find you
2: Um, usually under a rock or in a coffee house but um, my writer's website for the book which is grossly under I need to fix it. Um, it's very similar to your URL. It is RobinDWheeler.com. And you can also find me at SubterraneanHomemadeFoods.com.
0: Excellent. Robin Wheeler, thank you so very much for your time. You've been a wonderful thank guest. Thank
2: you, John Garter. Gardner, I quite enjoyed it.
0: All right, great. <laughs> we'll see you around. <laughs>
2: Go take care of that urine situation. <laughs> <laughs> bye
1: bye. Okay, bye-bye.